This organization called Al-Qaeda has attacked our country. They're trying to define my nation and they're trying to define my religion. And I can't sit here in Boston um, and not serve. It is the week of March 30th, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Today, we're doing a deep dive with Farah Pandith, NSI advisory board member and the first ever special representative to Muslim communities. Prior to being named the special representative, she served as senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs and as director for Middle East Regional Initiatives on the National Security Council. She is also the author of How We Win, How Cutting-Edge Entrepreneurs, Political Visionaries, Enlightened Business Leaders, and Social Media Mavens Can Defeat the Extremist Threat. Farah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So you've had a remarkable and unique career uh, working in administrations from both parties, dealing with an incredibly diverse group of people around the world and tackling uh, what can only be described as some of humanity's most intractable problems. How did this How did this whole journey begin for you? What role did your personal faith play in that journey? It's a It's a really important uh, perspective to take when you look back uh, all these years since nine eleven. But coming into government post nine eleven was a natural thing for me to do. I remember, being in Boston when our country was attacked, I was working in the private sector and had a visceral reaction. And, and I walked into my boss's office and I said, uh, I love my job and I love being here in Massachusetts, which is where home is. Uh, but this, this organization called Al-Qaeda has attacked our country. They're trying to define my nation and they're trying to define my religion. And I can't sit here in Boston um, and not serve. And so, for me, it really came from a sense of um, responsibility to do more as an American after we were attacked. Uh, I was very fortunate that I had tasted public service right off, out of college and had um, written a speech about diversity when I was a senior in college that uh, the First Lady of the United States, Barbara Bush, heard and liked and began to use. And so my first job in government was in public service. I worked in the H.W. Bush administration. At, and um, and so for me, going back and, and being part of the response after 9-11 was a, a very natural one. Okay. Uh, an amazing story. So it's been, uh, it's now 2020, of course. It's been a couple decades since 9-11. Uh, really an entire generation. Uh, the U.S. national security apparatus is slowly turning from battling terrorists to possibly countering the rise of a new peer competitor in China. In that, so in that context, this kind of, you know, this 20-year span that we've seen, um, how are we doing in, the, in what we used to call the global war on terror? Is, it, is this a battle that's still raging? Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? What's your, what's your kind of meta assessment of how we've done so far? 
Well, I think that you have to divide it into two two philosophies. One is how are we doing in the hard power war and how are we doing in the soft power war? Um, and they're both connected, obviously. But if you're measuring the metrics that Washington likes to look at is, you know, did we get the bad guy? Uh, and we have. We've gone after the heads of these organizations, whether it's AQ or whether it's ISIS. We have been able to puncture and disable a lot of the cells. We've gone after money. We've stood up a really robust response within the interagency in terms of following the money, making sure we have better intelligence sharing, all the things that you would expect. And from that perspective, we are in a much better place than we were on 9-11. However, what we have not done is to go to the root of the problem, which is the bad guys cannot do the work that they want to do if they don't have armies. And if they are unable to recruit, then in fact, we will have been able to do something real. And from my perspective, that dimension, the ideological dimension, the soft power dimension, we have failed miserably at. Uh, 20 years uh, has been devoted to trillions of dollars in fighting the hard power war, not understanding that we will have to do this all over again if we don't actually get to, to um, stopping the, the ideology, the appeal of the us versus them narrative that whether it's the Taliban or it's AQ or it's uh, the so-called Islamic State and its ne- next incarnation, if we don't do something about that appeal of that ideology, we will be fighting this for decades to come. So uh, when, uh, let me just come at it from one angle and maybe it's a, uh... Uh, kind of a pessimistic angle. So please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, in when 9/11 happened, you know we were we were worried about the extremist threat from abroad, about uh, extremism, whether it was theological or ideological, developing in foreign countries and then impacting us here. Now, in 2020, in the last few years, we've seen that there have been homegrown terrorists here in the United States. Not to say that never happened before. We had the Oklahoma City bombing um, well before 9-11, but it seems like we've seen an upsurge in Americans themselves acting out in with using extremist violence. So have we, have we really made progress on the soft power side in the last 20 years? Well, one of the things that's important is um, how did we frame the threat that we were facing? And we framed it just from the very beginning on 9-11 as something that came from over there to our shores. And that was the that was the structure that we put in place so that everything any American believed was that it came from abroad, it came here, uh, it was a foreign threat, it was a distant threat. Um, And in the 20 years since that, the intelligence community and others have actually described the war in that way. And I want to say to you that I think that's part of the problem in the way in which we've understood what what it is we're facing. The threat that we are facing 20 years after 9-11 may look different. Uh, to most Americans. We may look at the rise of hate in our own country and and should be appalled uh, at how lazy we've been on hate. Um, And we should be appalled at not seeing the the growth industry for hate and why it's developing. But you have to take a step back when we look at this and say, what is the ideology here? While these different groups, whether they're they're the violent far right or it's the so-called Islamic State, is an us versus them Uh, framework and narrative. And the way in which they go after their recruits, the way in which they try to do things is both online and offline. And each of these groups are learning from each other less. So when we look at 
the the threat today, the threat structure is in fact different. We didn't have the number of uh, groups in our own country. We did not see the kind of sharing of information between the violent far right, the neo-Nazis and others with their counterparts in Europe. We didn't see the con communication and the collaboration with different kinds of groups that use Islam for their recruiting. Um, we didn't see all of that, but yet, at the baseline, the issues of identity and belonging are central to all of these groups. And because we frame things in a what is a domestic homegrown situation versus what is a foreign situation, we have missed the opportunity to actually get real about solving the growth of hate globally. For me, there is no difference because ideologies have no borders, what's happening in, in Malawi makes a difference to what's happening in Canada, believe it or not. It's just the same way a group in, um, in Florida may get inspiration from something that's happening in Norway. So um, I couldn't agree with you more as you, as you kind of lay out the challenge. And it, it makes me wonder if we in, in the United States, in America, where we, we celebrate the importance of the individual, we talk about God-given rights for every single person, uh, government is instituted uh, not to give us those rights, but so that we can protect those rights. And, and we celebrate uh, individual choices and the, and the decisions that people make. How do how do we as Americans compete with that ideology that talks about the group being more important than the individual? Kind of what you what you were just talking about, how whether it's uh, domestic groups here that might be on the far right, and I, th I think there might be some on the far left too, uh, whether it's uh, theologically oriented groups abroad, whether they're Muslim or Christian or others, it's it, those those ideologies can be a little bit compelling in that they provide i think in that they provide a role for a person to fit into something larger than themselves how do we as a as a society that's based on the importance of the single person fight that is there are there steps that we can take to make the case that the american way is really better than these other big picture approaches well, let's let's talk about that. Um, at the root of this appeal of this ideology, it's an individual that says to themselves, that argument makes sense. And I want to be part of, I want to belong to that tribe uh, that is that is that is believing in this. And when you look at the work that we have seen researchers um, unpack in the last 20 years uh, and scholars who have been working on the violent far right uh, for longer than that, we know that identity and belonging is central to how a, a person thinks about these issues. And so for me, when I look at what the response ought to be, we ought to be looking at three really important things. One is that most important critical thing that I've just mentioned. When somebody asks, who am I? What is the answer that they get? You know, how, how can they understand themselves? Secondly, um, who are the most authentic voices to be able to work with that individual to make them feel whole as themselves, as opposed to feeling like they need to belong to the so-called Islamic State or something else to actually have agency, to feel like they are something? And thirdly, um, this isn't about a country, the United States or someone else, saying that you've got to come to our way because that's the antidote to the ideology that the bad guys are going after, 
rather, what we want in order to deflate the appeal of this ideology and to reduce the threat structure for our national security, which is a different question than society, and I, I will talk about the society portion, we've got to say, what are we willing and what is it that we have to be able to do? Our goal here is to make sure we reduce the amount of people that are joining these organizations. So who are the most credible and authentic voices that can do that? It is not a nation state that comes after them and says, please believe in democracy or please believe in this or please believe in the American way and you will you will be fine. That's the mistake we made right after 9-11 when we said our formula is better than the Al-Qaeda's formula and so forth. So if you believe in liberty and justice and the American way and you see that you will you 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 know you will not find what um, Al-Qaeda is offering you uh, as appealing. That isn't the way in which you have to look at this. What we have to be able to say is, how do we get into the, the um, e exploration of identity that's happening with these young people who are navigating their identity anyway? You, you know, the human brain does not develop until the age of 24. Something's happening as a young person of any background, you know, as they grow up, they are asking questions about themselves and what their purpose in life is. If we can disrupt that ability for the bad guys to come in and to lure those young people at that moment as they're asking the question, we will succeed in the tasks that we have ahead of us. And then there's a second piece, which is not necessarily the national security perspective specifically. Here we are both in Washington talking to a wonky crowd, but there's a bigger human element here. The rise of hate isn't cool, okay? It isn't a great thing to have societies that are divided between us and, and them. So when you talk about this larger thing about who we are um, and what we offer as Americans, I'll tell you the one thing we have that no one else has, which is this idea of equality. And the bad guys want to tell you that everybody is not equal. And the great American promise is that, in fact, and we are not perfect, obviously, but what we are saying here is we believe one of our values is people are equal. And so if you are somehow able to talk about the issue of equality um, and promote, very importantly, certainly around the extremism that I've been working on in the last 20 years, which is um, the kind of extremism that is used by terrorist organizations that use the name of Islam to recruit, they want you to believe that monolithic interpretations of what it means to be Muslim is the way to go. And what we want to put forward is diversity is our friend. We want lots of expressions of the way in which you, you live your life as a Muslim on this planet. And so what we can offer here as we talk about who we are as Americans is not just um, the important values of democracy and freedom, but it's also just basically the human aspects of who you are as a human on this planet and the rights that you have as an equal a uh, person on the planet and someone who is allowed to live your diversity out loud. So uh, as the uh, parent of a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old, I can, I can certify scientifically that you're entirely correct that brains are not done growing <laughs> in the teenage years. Uh, at least I certainly hope that's true. Uh, and, and I also, but I also kind of reflect on is again, totally anecdotal that uh, young people in America today do have an appreciation that hate is not cool. 
and that um, inequality is not cool. And there does seem to be a, I, I have to say, this generation uh, of young people, and I don't know if we call them Generation Z or, or what, uh, seems to have something that their elders didn't necessarily have at that scale, which is a willingness to embrace uh, people who are not like them enthusiastically and, and, and get offended when they don't, when they see others not doing it as enthusiastically as they do. And it's, and it's, I think there may be a couple of downsides to that, but they're overall, it's a terrific phenomenon. And uh, so I throw the question to you, do you think that, that we as Americans, um, you know, to pick a parochial group of 333 million people, <laughs> uh, do you think we as Americans are getting better at this, that there is, that there is hope and that despite kind of the increased uh, racial rhetoric of the last couple of years and God help anyone if you're following this stuff on Twitter too much. Uh, but do you think as, as a people we've, we're doing better over time? Well, it, it is important to understand that, um, you know, when we look at the social fabric of America, it would be ridiculous to suggest that um, it's super strong and there are no holes and the tears that have begun uh, over the course of the last decades, not just two decades, but many decades, haven't exposed a really ugly underbelly of some of the things that are um, that have been apparent to some communities in America and not as apparent to others. Um, what I think is remarkable today is that we are able to talk about things in a way we weren't in times past. And I think that's a positive thing. Um, and while we I have a long way to go, I fear, around the social fabric of the country. I do agree with you that I think the Generation uh, Z is different. Um, as digital natives growing up in the context of what they've grown up with and how they see their peers, not just within our country, but around the world, there is a cohesion that has not been experienced by even millennials um, ar around this. How it actually turns out, I'm not quite sure, but there are hopeful signs. I think one of the things that's going to be fundamental to making sure that that social fabric stays strong is that older generations and our elected leaders and business leaders and other leaders actually put this kind of thing front and center. These soft issues are always left on the sidelines. I mean, they're, they're always the, the second and the third and maybe the 10 things that, that come up when people are talking about priorities, you know? And I, I think it's, it should be reversed. I think we have to spend some real time talking about building the nation that we know it that can be. And we've got to act as if and understand that the fault lines and the flaw lines are, um, are things that we take seriously and we're going to repair them. You cannot do that if you only expect, um, you know, NGOs or uh, social services or uh, organizations that are trying to get money to do the many other things that they're trying to do to add this on there. It has to be an integrated, cohesive approach that comes not just from the bottom up, but from the top down. And I'm afraid, Lessa, what we're not seeing today is that kind of leadership in our country around issues of social cohesion, of, of mutual respect, and of diversity. Yeah, I think you're putting that very diplomatically, and I uh, uh, totally agree with you. So in your book, uh, How We Win, you talk about um, 
uh, a bunch of great stuff in there. And one of the things you focus on is the best ways to deal with this youngest generation. And at one point you used a great metaphor. You said it's not enough to just uh, oppose something. You have to kind of build your own crew. You said, uh, uh, and, and maybe someone else said this to you, that you have to build Dumbledore's army to kind of steal the, uh, the plot line from Harry Potter. Uh, in other words, you have to use the, the the young people themselves to talk to other young people uh, and, and bring up our liberal values of democracy, human rights and tolerance. So have we have we found good ways to do that? And if so, what are they? Well, one of the, the great things about um, my experience serving after 9-11, despite all the really um, sobering elements around extremism and the rise of hate, was that there were so many actors around the world that were within societies at the civil society level who were not going to sit around waiting for government to, to show up and try to fix the game. They wanted to make sure that they were building resilient communities themselves. And those young people uh, throughout the book, How We Win, are described. And this book, as you know, because you've read it, is, is hopeful. This is not a doom and gloom. It, it, it gives you the solutions front and center. This is what we can do now. The solutions are available and affordable. And by the way, um, each person has a role to play. And that's where the Dumbledore's army comes in. I do talk about um, the many things government needs to do, the many things business needs to do. But I get very excited about showcasing the young talent that I saw from countries as diverse as Pakistan and Zanzibar um, and, you know, uh, Trinidad and Tobago and Malaysia. I mean, these young people around the world were doing things in a real way that knew that would have value value to their peers to be able to push back. And those I call, um, you know, the kind of credible voices, because they're peer-to-peer voices. There are things that are being told to each other in, in a way and delivered in messages that make sense. And the way the tools that they do this are things that government has been able to experience today. So when you're asking, like, do we know what to do? That's the, that's the tragedy here. 20 years after 9-11, we know what to do. We have tested the marketplace. What we haven't done is gone all in. We talked earlier about hard power and soft power. And for me, the soft power piece has always been left on the sideline. It's kind of like, do what you need to do with this pedidly amount of money and see if you can actually make a difference and stop everybody from joining ISIS. It's, like, it's not going to work like that. We've got to go all in. We've got to go all in with the kind of devotion, commitment, and focus that we did in the hard power war and scale all of these incredibly interesting very authentic, organic, and real um, nano interventions by young people, and um, and we will see a surge in the in the atmosphere and the way in which young people think about this us versus them ideology. So when we are looking at the the um, the landscape today, Les, and we think about all of these people that are part of Dumbledore's army, you cannot expect to see the kind of change that we need if it is um, if it is just one or two people in one part of the world. It's got to be a collaborative effort at pace, at scale, for a, a committed period of time that is not just on a um, congressional funding cycle. It needs to be on a scale that's a human, a human one. We are in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, and it is kind of like saying if one person stays home 
um, it's going to make a difference. I'm uh, yes, that one person could be somebody who is carrying the virus, and that person staying home is going to make um, maybe a difference to one person. But what happens when we stop? everything, everybody stays home, we flatten the curve, we make sure the disease is not spread, we we simultaneously affect change by the scale. So when I look at the solutions available by, by these young, these authentic ideas that come from these young people, I know that scale is a really important component to this. Okay, I love I love that answer, uh, but I want to I want to push back a little bit and maybe get you to um, uh, say some controversial things about the US government, at least the way it's structured. So uh, we spend, uh, as as the US government spends about $60 billion a year on diplomacy and development. That's the State Department, it's US Agency for International Development, where you and I used to work in the George W. Bush administration. Uh, and of course, we were both very successful. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then a variety of other smaller agencies, but it's essentially the US uh, budget for soft power around the world. Where do we go in that uh, $60 billion? What do we go to the State Department? Do we go to USAID? Do we go to the National Endowment for Democracy? Do we need to do something new? How do we how do we make how do we make governmental decisions to reflect what you just said? We spent three years um, after 9-11 trying to figure out where to put this problem. Um, and we wasted precious time doing that. Do we need a czar to handle the public diplomacy thing? Do we need to put it at the Department of Defense? No, 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 said the State Department. We need it over here. And then somebody else said we need it over there. I am not interested anymore in any of the interagency nonsense. What I really want to see today is a decision being made. If you want to put it at DOD, go for it. If you want to put it at state, I don't care. Just wake up every day and know that somebody has that responsibility just the way we have the responsibility in the hard power war, that there's a chairman of the Joint Chiefs who wakes up every single day and knows the entire architecture of all of his or her tools in their toolbox. We need that same kind of person only committed to the ideological war. And this ideological war on hate that is infecting neo-Nazis, is infecting ISIS, is all, all of these different trajectories of hate and power are surging. The bad guys aren't waiting for us to get our act together. They are getting money. They are learning from each other. They are building their armies. They're waiting for um, they're waiting for every opportunity they can. In fact, during this COVID nineteen crisis, it will be interesting for your listeners to realize that um, that groups like the so called Islamic State were using um, were using propaganda around COVID nineteen, saying this is God's punishment. I mean, they were they were not waiting. They they were using this this element. There was a commission report by CSIS in 2016 that um, articulated, I think, very fiercely um, how poorly we have done on the money side. Uh, we spent 0.0138% of our budget in soft power uh, fighting the the ISIS. Uh, ideology. Okay, that is pathetic. You're never going to see any results for that kind of money. I want your money to match the rhetoric that comes out of every part of our government that says we actually care about fighting the, the war um, uh, around us versus them. I mean, you you have to you have to match your resources, what we have. So when you ask me where it should be and who needs to do it at this point, it doesn't matter because what will happen is we have to have leadership, we have to have the resources, and we have to simply scale everything that we know works 
over the course of the last 20 years. There is no new innovation that is required of the US government right now, except to scale the things that we know. Um, and simultaneously, to understand where we go in building the collaborations that we haven't built. And what I spell out in How We Win is a new kind of thinking around how we dissect power around these issues and how we've been dealing with our partners and allies. I mean, we have each country in the world is taking on this ideological war exactly independently. So France is doing their thing. Malaysia is doing their thing. Pakistan is like... It's ridiculous. What we ought to be doing is looking at this as we would a hard power problem, which is how how do we look at um, the intel sharing in a very particular way? How do we look at the hard assets in terms of troops, in terms of um, you know what equipment we have, in terms of who does what when? We've got to be doing that kind of precision analysis, and the strategy and soft power needs to be as formulaic as the hard power one. Today, it's all over the place. So I want to see money matching what we say we care about. I have no, no question in my mind that people are concerned about the rise of hate. I think that is an emotional thing. I think it is a, um, it's also a critically strategic thing. They understand the impact of it. But I have yet to see anyone in Congress or in this administration, call for an overhaul in the way in which we're spending soft power money to fight this ideological threat. So uh, as, as, we're, uh, as the U.S. is becoming, it seems, uh, and I think the coronavirus uh, crisis is accelerating this, more and more concerned about China and the rise of a possible peer competitor and a completely different uh, approach to national security issues. Is there a way that the, the programs and the policies and the emphasis that you're talking about can play a role in the U.S. providing an alternative to the Chinese way around the world, whether it's in sub-Saharan Africa, the rest of Eurasia, or even Latin America. You know, can we, is, is there a confluence of priorities here between the war on terror and this concern about an emerging peer competitor where we can, Maybe we can make an argument in the current administration, which is as populist as they come, that, hey, it's in our national interest to be promoting this tolerance and this, uh, you know, this Dumbledore's army that's going to fight hate. Is there is there a way to do that as we're shifting priorities here? Well, I want to be really clear, um, as somebody who served as a political appointee for both uh Republican and Democratic presidents, um, I take no position politically. But I will tell you that if it is almost impossible to conceive of this administration having any credibility speaking about issues of mutual respect um, across any uh, any kind of um, test, you know, whether it is um, language that is being used from the White House podium, whether it's what's being used in social media, there's no legitimacy there. So I don't see any hope, frankly, um, that the administration is going to do anything around this. I do, however, believe that um, the the vectors of change can come from outside of government around this, and I and I see great potential in both business and in philanthropy in getting real 
about these issues. We know what can be done. We're watching it right now, actually in real time with the COVID crisis of what other sectors of, of society are actually doing because government has screwed up so badly. So what we what we can see and what we know in the last 20 years is um, philanthropy has tested some models for NGOs to be able to use. Why, why aren't we making big bets on fighting hate? No one's done that yet. You know, we do big bets around health and I'm all for it or poverty or other really important climate change. I've, I'm all for that, but there's enough money to go around and, and we need some real um, visionary leadership around putting money into fighting hate at a scale and in a dimension that has many touch points so that you are seeing this activated in a, in a real way. So I'm, um, I, I think that the, the question you're asking for another administration, I'm all in. I'm like, I, I will tell you exactly what I think we ought to be doing and how we do, how we do it. In fact, my entire chapter in the book and the government is about how to re- organize the government to do this, including how we use our embassies in a better way. And that's where the Chinese have been masterful. They are in every part of the world doing what it is that they are focused on doing. And we've taken money and personnel and resources away from our embassies to be able to do the kind of work that we should be, we should be scaling up these things, not reducing the ability for our in-country presence to make a difference. So, uh, I, I do want to. Uh, I, I I don't disagree with your thesis about about the administration certainly, and some of the stuff that's being said is uh, exactly counterproductive. But we live in a world where uh, uh, power is diversified across uh, different organs of our government. Um, the president uh, comes out with a budget request that's largely ignored by Congress, uh, and the last three years in a row, he's called for budget cuts of twenty or thirty percent to international affairs. Congress has has ignored those and funded. Uh, state and USAID at a level uh, that's basically similar to the Obama administration. And a lot of the programs are fully funded, maybe not every single one, but there's there's a Congress is the driver on uh, the level of funding for for stuff we're talking about. Is there is there a way to take your case to the legislative branch? It's Article One in our Constitution. Can we can we go to the Hill and make the case that you know despite what the current administration says uh, on Twitter or from the podium or uh, in front of cameras and what the chirons look like, that we could we can go to where government is really created, which is appropriations committee, various authorizing committees on the Hill, and maybe get some stuff done there, even in an with an administration that isn't necessarily embracing what we're talking about. Is that possible? I love your question, and you're absolutely correct. I have, in fact, spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill um, talking through these issues, um, and I, I would put it into three buckets on where they need to make a difference. The first is, um, as much as I have been happy that they have put the money back in the budget that the president has wanted to cut to make sure that diplomacy has what it needs, it's really not enough. They're not being imaginative enough, and they're not understanding how important culture and diplomacy is. This isn't about airy-fairy stuff. It goes back to what we were talking about when we began our conversation. Washington doesn't value soft power. They say they do but they don't. They're willing to take risks on in, in putting money into a military machine that may or may not work. And if it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't work, it's all right. They tested it. They tried it. You know, it's all right. We don't have that kind of patience when it comes to the kinds of programs that, that we are trying to test and, um, and uh, to imagine at the State Department. The measuring stick 
for, for programs around countering violent extremism or CVE programs are ridiculous. People have said to me in, uh, on the Hill, so if you tell me that we put in that money to me that somebody is not going to become a terrorist, are you kidding me? Like, that's your measuring stick. It's absurd. It sounds absolutely ludicrous. Um, the kind of money that I was given to do the experimentation in the Bush and Obama administrations was baby money. It was minuscule. It doesn't require, you know, trillions of dollars. But I would argue today that what, what Congress needs to do is to think differently about the measuring stick. They need to think differently about the pockets of money. The, you know, it sounds super big to say $60 billion and all this. Let's just take the kind of extremism that I, I have been dealing with since 9-11, which is uh, th these groups are, are preying upon young kids who have a religious or cultural affiliation to Islam, okay? Do you know how many kids there are under the age of 30 in the world today that fit into that bucket? A billion, a billion young people under the age of 30 who are Muslim. So you're gonna tell me that the bad guys have an unlimited supply of potential recruits, and you're gonna give me pennies on the dollar, if even pennies, to fight this war, give me a break. So I want to put, I want them to put real money into this. I want them to experiment with a different kind of timeline and not just on a budgetary cycle. I, they really need to be thinking differently. And here's the kicker, and you didn't ask me this question, but I have to put it in. The most important thing Congress can do is to get real with Saudi Arabia. That is where the rubber hits the road. In traveling to nearly 100 countries when I was special representative to Muslim communities, the central connection point was the issue of identity and, uh, and belonging, as I mentioned to you earlier. Connected to that is a 40-year program in which Saudi Arabia has spent billions of dollars to make sure that the way people believe they are Muslim is to think about a monolithic and very strict version of how to express themselves. That impacts our bottom line. And even though many Congress men and women all know this and they know the role that Saudi Arabia has played because it comes forward in briefings that they get and they are attuned to this, no one has been bold and courageous enough to do something about it. So those are the three ways in which Congress can actually make a difference. And then I just want to say one other thing. Um, it isn't just about the federal government. It's also about local governments. And mayors have a gigantic role to play, not just in our country, but around the world in changing the way people think about diversity and us versus them. And, and we, not, we need to not overlook their own power. Farah, this is fantastic. I think I feel like this is a topic we could talk about for hours, um, but we're gonna we're gonna cut it off there. Uh, we really appreciate you being with us. The book is called "How We Win: How Cutting Edge Entrepreneurs, Political Visionaries, Enlightened Business Leaders, and Social Media Mavens Can Defeat the Extremist Threat." Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, as always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver, our director and producer, for all of his terrific work. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Mm -hmm.